All right, well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to follow along with us on a blue pew Bible that looks something like this. You can find in front of you, and you can find 1 Timothy 2 on page 991. Well, as we preach through this letter, the next passage up is 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. And it is a passage that has gotten um, a lot of attention, particularly over the last couple of generations. Uh, it's probably one of the most well-known passages in this letter, often for all the wrong reasons. And as one of the commentators that I've been uh, studying or commentaries I've been using for this series, um, the, the, the guy who wrote it said that this is a passage where there is, quote, danger on every side. And if uh, you're not familiar with the passage, you'll foon, soon find out why. But uh, it, it's, a, it's one that engages a topic that is um, oftentimes polarizing uh, in the conversations both within the church and in the culture at large. And that topic is the relationship between and dis distinctions among men and women in the local church. And so we are going to go through it and unpack it and see what was happening in Ephesus that caused Paul to write it. And then like we do with every passage, we are going to see how those specific concerns in that time and that place relate to the church today. Um, but as uh, I've been preaching over the years, um, I've come to know that any passage that I know uh, carries a little extra heat in our day today, that I remind myself of the foundational hope that I have in preaching. And that is, first and foremost, to be faithful and rooted to the ancient text. And then also to be mindful of the modern context that we are currently in. But I just want to remind us all together that this morning is another good example of the benefit of preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse. Because uh, not only does it help prevent me from avoiding certain topics that I might naturally not want to preach about, um, but we are reminded that these verses don't stand alone. They're often plucked out alone, but they don't stand alone. There's a passage that came before it, and we unpacked that last week. There's a passage that's going to come after it, and we will unpack that next week. And so I have to just admit that in my preparation for this passage, I went into it a little bit anxious, uh, knowing that even when we started this series, that, it was, that, that this passage was coming. And uh, just in case you were wondering, no, I did not purposely put it on President's Day weekend, knowing our attendance was going to be a little bit lower. Um, uh, that just happened to be God's providence. Um, but uh, I also have to be honest that I came to find on this side of it, and now preparing to preach it, that I don't think it's that controversial. I, I think this is actually, when you understand it in context, is, is simpler than we think and edifying as the rest of the Bible is. And so last week in chapter 2, 1 through 7, Paul emphasized the truth that the church has an exclusive message, the gospel, with an inclusive mission, and that is to make disciples of all nations. And that's what we saw last week. Exclusive message with an inclusive mission. And the church's foundation of that mission we saw is prayer. Prayer individually and corporately in our gatherings that we pray and we long for and we work towards the strengthening of faith in believers and the awakening of faith in unbelievers. That's what we do. That is why we are here. And now, on the heels of that, he will address some specific obstacles in Ephesus that seem to be hindering that goal, seem to be in that congregation hindering that aim of the church to make disciples of all nations. And then next week, which is the beginning of chapter 3, he'll talk about the qualifications of elders, 
that are needed to effectively lead a church that is carrying out that mission to make disciples of all nations. And so with that said, as we go to the text, the goal of today's sermon, it's the same as every other sermon I have preached. And that is that by the end of it, you would love Jesus more. Not primarily thinking about me or the outline, but you would be caught up in your affections towards Christ more than when you walked in. And so let's go. We're going to be covering verses 8 through 15 in chapter 2, but we're going to read it in, uh, in three different chunks. And we're going to start with just with verse 8. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. All right, we'll stop there. Uh, I encourage you, if you have your Bibles open, to keep them open throughout because we're going to constantly be going back to the text and then to the sermon. So keep that Bible on the lap in front of you or on your phone. But as I said earlier, Paul emphasizes the power of prayer and the mission of God. And now he's going to move to address these specific obstacles within the church in Ephesus that seem to be hindering that mission to, again, strengthen faith and awaken faith. And the first obstacle is this, prideful men. Prideful men. When Paul says in verse 8, the men, he's not referring to all men in the church, but rather the men who were leading in prayer during the public gatherings of the church. So in this way, verse 8 is an extension of all that has come before it. If you were here through chapter 1, Paul was speaking really and exhorting the elders who were falling short of their calling. Their calling to guard the gospel, to celebrate the gospel, and to fight for the gospel. That's what they're called to, and they have not been doing it. And then moving now to the immediate context of chapter 2, Paul is talking about the church when it gathers for public worship. Of of what it looks like when, when the church gathers together to build one another up in the faith and to glorify God. And apparently the men, who may or may not have been the elders and extended beyond the elders, who were leading in prayer during those gatherings, were using that time to vent out their anger towards one another. So we just heard how Paul was saying how important uh, prayer is in the church. And now it's being co-opted to give these men a platform to just go off on one another. Passive-aggressive praying, praying to God, but really venting my anger towards those who maybe they disagree with. And so Paul's like, what is happening right now? Like, how does that build up the church and the faith? How is your anger and your quarreling, not only outside of your prayers, but in your praying? Like, what kind of witness does that show to unbelievers within the gathering? Like, what are we doing? And as we can imagine, this infighting was clearly on display from these men, and it served as a distraction. That's a key throughout this whole passage, that their anger and pride served as a distraction from the aim of public worship. Like, simply put, they made it about them. It wasn't about God and worshiping God. It wasn't about building up others. They made it about them. This was a platform for them to go off. And while prayer ought to be the great unifier of the body, almost to be able to cover some of the differences and tensions that believers have, because together we pray and we deploy our prayers for kingdom concerns, while it should be unifying, now it's a platform for division out of personal pride. 
And so now when Paul says men should pray lifting holy hands, he's not policing their posture. He's not saying the only way you can pray is if your hands are lifted high. He's not focused on posture, but inward purity. Uh, And this is a theme throughout scripture of hands and heart. Let me show you one place where we see it in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. The psalmist writes, Who shall ascend the, the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Paul is saying that those who pray publicly will only be fruitful in their praying if it's an extension of their inward pursuit of Christ. If their public prayer that other people are hearing is an extension of their prayer life in secret. I'm not putting on a show here. I'm not performing here. This is an outflow of what's true of what's happening inside. Because prayer is always inward first. And the power of prayer and the power of public prayer is rooted in the character of the person before the actual words of the prayer. The power of the prayer is rooted in the character of the person before the actual words in the prayer. And so if our heart is bent towards pride and anger and infighting and we become consumed with those who are hearing our prayer and who we want to send a message across in our prayer, in our ministry, and it's not primarily rooted in God who graciously invites us to listen and to speak to him, that is pride. That is overcoming and it's so damaging. And by the way, this is true for all believers, isn't it? Like, like, like Paul is directly exhorting this to the men of Ephesus because it's the men in Ephesus who were violating it. But this is a command that goes to all believers, men and women. But to stay rooted in the text, we ought to be reminded that prideful men in leadership will hinder the mission of the gospel in the local church. And I don't think it's an overreach to say the, the biggest threat to local churches and the mission of local churches is not external threats from the government or non-believers or those who might be hostile to the gospel, but it's the inward pride of its leaders will always be the greatest threat that we need to defend against because pride is always connected with an unhealthy view towards power. And pride takes power and uses it as something not to serve others and build up others, but it's deployed to dominate others. And that's true everywhere, but again, we're focusing on the local church here. When power is used to dominate and control and not used to serve and uplift, it's damaging. It's really damaging. And that's true in Ephesus. It's true today. And so for everything else he's going to cover in this passage, it's worth noting. He says this first. The obstacles in Ephesus starts with prideful men. Let's keep going now to verses 9 and 10. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. All right, the second obstacle in Ephesus, number two, boastful women. Prideful men and then boastful women. So before anyone starts to Unbraid your hair in the pew before you discreetly like take off some jewelry that you put on this morning or before anyone writes off Paul as the modesty police and I knew the Bible was this way and I'm done with it. Let's talk about this. 
the goal of Paul's exhortation to both prideful men and now to boastful women is the same. It's so important that we see this. It is to remove obstacles within public worship that hinder the focus on God and the mission to make disciples. And I'll say this because it does relate to the third point, um, that when Paul says at the beginning of verse 9, likewise, you see that word? He goes from 8 to 9 and he says, likewise, he could now also be addressing the women who pray in the public gatherings, just as he directed the men who prayed in verse 8 implying that women in the church at Ephesus had a role in leading in prayer when the church gathered. So just as all believers should be careful with pride, but Paul is especially calling out the men who prayed publicly, so now, too, all believers should be aware of their appearance, but Paul is especially calling out the women who were praying publicly. That's how I see that word, likewise. But the principle here is simple, even if the application of it can be divisive and tricky today. All right, so let's talk principle first and then application. Here's the principle. Since the core aim of our embodied public worship gatherings are to glorify God and reflect the gospel, our physical appearance at those gatherings should enhance the mission and not detract from it. Let me say that again. This is the principle of these verses. That since our worship gatherings are to glorify God and reflect the gospel, our appearance and our physical appearance at those gatherings should enhance that mission and not detract from it. And again, this is simpler than we often think. Everything we do as embodied people, including the way we present ourselves in public life and in life, including our gatherings at the church, can enhance the mission or detract from it. That's something that we can all agree on. So so let's talk Ephesus and why he's giving these commands in Ephesus, and then let's do the tricky work of trying to apply this today in Grace Church. So within the Roman Empire, Ephesus was a large city for its time. It was multicultural. It was a port city that served as a crossroads for commerce and trading throughout the vast empire. So there was a very wealthy merchant class in the city. And it was a very uh, pluralistic culture with many gods in the ancient Greek gods. Ephesus was the epicenter for the worship of the goddess Artemis. And the temple of Artemis, which was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, We have a picture of a depiction of what we believe the temple of Artemis looked like in the city of Ephesus. Um, For those Jeopardy fans out there, this answer was a $1,000 category this past week. Seven ancient wonders of the world, all right? And uh, Artemis was $1,000, so there you go. Um, But this was um, uh, not only an unbelievable feat of architecture and building in that time, but it helped to shape the culture and the DNA of the city of Ephesus. And that activity in and around the temple... And then extension throughout the whole city was ahead of its time, you could say, in terms of sexual pervasiveness, um, prostitution, and what the Bible would consider sexual immorality was celebrated, was um, uh, really kind of the heartbeat of not only the temple, but again, by extension, the city. And so the images on coins and sculptures and artifacts from the temple as well as ancient literature from philosophers that depicted the wealthy women from Ephesus in ways that are consistent with the descriptions in 1 Timothy 2. That those images in the literature, those images on the coins and artifacts, were women with braided hair and costly jewelry and excessive attire. 
that associated them both with the goddess Artemis and the status of the wealthy class. So let's connect the dots here. In a culture where that is prominent and, and that way of appearance very much aligned you with the culture of the city of Ephesus, to go to public worship and see the very same statements of wealth and sexual symbols associated with Artemis from the women, especially the women who were leading in the public gatherings and possibly other elements of the gathering, it again served as a distraction from worship. Again, Paul is saying, what are we doing? Like, what is happening? And the women, just like the men were, were making it about them and not about God. These distractions spotlighted the divisions between the haves and the have-nots, that what you wore clearly showed you what status you were in. And again, it's not just the sexual pervasiveness, but I think these verses are more talking about the appearance that seemed to really boast in wealth and status. And so when you went to the public gathering within the church, you know what it looked like? It looked a whole lot like the world. Detracting from the gospel mission. So that's the principle, and that principle is timeless. The application, tricky. It's tricky for us today. All right, so let's do this. Um, is it wrong for a woman in the church to braid her hair at public worship? No. Is it wrong to wear pearls or jewelry? No. Why? Because braided hair and jewelry does not indicate wealth or sexual promiscuity in the same way that detracts from the mission of the gospel in the church now than it did in Ephesus. But does the principle still stand? Meaning this, is it wrong to be so consumed with our appearances and choosing our personal comfort and our statements of status over and above the aim to glorify God in public worship? Yes. As embodied people, we ought to be mindful of what we put on our bodies and how we appear to ensure that we're not trying to stand out for the sake of standing out and drawing attention to ourselves and detracting from our worship of God. We ought to not be consumed with our status or our beauty and make decisions on our appearance for those reasons. That when you look at your closet and you think about, I'm going to church today, what am I going to wear to church today? That the first thing you're thinking about is not how, how other people just see me. How can I stand out? How can I make a statement today? So we need to acknowledge some things here that has emerged in the church and even in recent generations. So um, hang with me here. It does get tricky here. But just as it's possible to elevate a certain way of dress, of promiscuity in a way that dishonors God in the church, so too it is possible to see that pendulum swing so far to the other side where a church elevates what um, can be known as a purity culture, especially amongst youth, and a purity culture that does real damage to them and also dishonors God in the church. So some of you are familiar with this conversation that has been especially happening over the last couple of years, looking back across the last couple of generations of the uh, so-called purity culture. What this means is it's a culture in a church where, again, the pendulum swings where men and women, but particularly women, and particularly young women, middle school and high school, are discipled to find their value in their sexual purity and not in Christ. And I'm telling you, it's not only wrong, it's destructive. And it does serious damage. And what this looks like is the discipleship of younger women is not um, rooted in the knowledge and their affections for Christ. It's not rooted in the way that God sees them 
but it's rooted in the way that if you dress modestly, because you don't want to be too tempting, and you need to keep yourself pure for your future husband, and what this happens is it creates this real fear of anything related to sex or sexuality, because if you're, care- if you're not careful enough, you're going to mess up. And if you mess up, young women, you're not going to be wanted by a good Christian man. And maybe people wouldn't say it as starkly as that, but that is essentially the message of discipleship oftentimes within purity culture. And it's shame-based, and it's fear-based, and it's not rooted in the gospel. It's not rooted in a healthy view of self or as an outflow of our affections in Christ, how he sees us. And so we in the church, we at Grace Church, want to equip all of our people, but particularly our young women, to see their value first and foremost in the way God sees them and affirming them in Christ. And the way that God has purifies them as his daughters by the blood of his son Jesus and not by whether or not she wore a sweater over that dress. So if we're going to be nuanced here, um, is there room for discussions about appearances and modesty in the local church? Absolutely. Um, should we disciple our young women to not be consumed by status or Instagram's definition of beauty? Of course. But let us ensure with clarity that those conversations were happening with our children and with the women in our church flow out of the way God sees his daughters, I'll say it again, and free them from the shame of guilt from purity culture. And so this principle, again, is being spoken to the women in Ephesus because of specific concerns Paul has there. But it's true and it's applicational to all of us, men and women, boys and girls. But I do want to say this before we move on. To young women particularly middle school, high school, young adult women who are here or maybe listening in the future, I want you to hear from us at Grace Church that our prayer for you, my prayer for my six- and four-year-old daughters as they grow older in this culture, is that the way you see yourselves would align with the way God sees you. And how he sees you is beautiful. Because of what Christ has done for you. And when you see yourself and when you make your decisions about appearance, about dress, about jewelry, I pray that you would make those decisions knowing that you don't need to attract anything from anyone in this world that will compare to the level of beauty that God already sees you with. And maybe to kind of polish this off, I want to finish with a quote from an author named Emily Cobb who wrote about this verse, who puts it more concisely than I can. She says, quote, this surely isn't meant to deny us freedom to choose how we dress, how we communicate our personalities and delight in the gifts God gives us. But we all know that there are choices that will be an unhelpful distraction. So maybe as a final application point before we go to point three, Uh, All of us, when we decide what we wear, let us feel free to communicate our personality in our dress. Let us feel free to delight in the gifts that God gives us in the way we dress. But let us also ask ourselves, how can I dress in a way that will enhance the mission of God that he has given me to glorify his name and make disciples of all nations? Let's start asking that in the closet as well. All right, let's go to the final obstacle. This is verses 11 through 15. 
Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was deceived, but Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, what do we do with this? Unfortunately, we still have time. We still have time. No, number three, um, the third obstacle is disruptive women. Disruptive women. Now again, I'm going to say it again. Let's unpack these verses in context with the passage. What is Paul doing here? The goal in his exhortation to first prideful men, then boastful women, and now disruptive women is the same. It is the same. To remove obstacles within public worship that hinder the focus on God and the mission to make disciples. And in Ephesus, there were certain women, again, not all women, certain women who were being disruptive during the public teaching or what we know as preaching in the public gathering. We don't know what that looked like. We don't know what that means. But it was happening often enough to the point where Paul addresses it. And while all the discussion today is put on the part of the exhortation where women are to remain quiet and be submissive, the radical part of this exhortation in the first century actually came before all that. If your Bibles are still open, look down. When Paul says, let a woman learn, that was the radical part when Paul wrote it. Uh, Let me quote um, Philip Ryken here. It'll be up on the screen to provide the context. With this statement, Paul shatters conventional stereotypes, not modern stereotypes, but ancient ones. In the Roman world, women were considered to be intellectually second class. It was widely accepted that females were academically inferior. Thus, the educational system was designed primarily for men, not women. In other words, educating women was a big waste of time. Not surprisingly, women played a small role in the public life of the culture and synagogue. The Babylonian Talmud, which is an ancient Jewish text, explains the difference between men and women in worship. Quote, the men came to learn, the women came to hear. So Paul, and by extension the early church, were radically different from both the Roman culture and the Jewish cultures of the day where women in the local church were seen on equal footing as men when it came to being disciples of Jesus Christ. Discipler, some of you know this. You know what disciple, uh, discipler literally means? It means learner, to be a learner. So to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a Christ learner. To believe in Jesus is to learn the ways of Jesus and then to follow him in those ways. And in the local church, men and women are both learners. And Paul didn't start this, by the way. This wasn't Paul and his idea to bring it in, but it was Jesus. You see it all throughout the Gospels and then by extension throughout the New Testament. And it's unmistakable to see the important place that women have in the early church. They were among Jesus' disciples that followed him and learned from him in his three-year ministry. They were at the cross when he died. They were the first to reach the empty tomb and proclaim the resurrection. They were in the upper room when the Spirit descended on Pentecost. They contended for the gospel alongside Paul and Philippi. They taught new converts in Corinth and Ephesus. They prophesied in Jerusalem. 
They hosted churches in their homes. They served the church in Rome, delivered Paul's letters to the church in Rome, and served as deacons in Rome. So Paul confronts the culture with the truth, and he calls women to learn and not just hear. And in doing so, he expects that women will be intimately a part of the ministry in the local church. But he says to these specific women in Ephesus who are being disruptive that they are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. And again, I think the reasoning is simpler than we often realize in the midst of the heated discussion that often arises from these verses. Um, Learning well requires you to be quiet. Everyone in the room, think of the last time you've learned something. Like, think about in work or in your family, you say, I learned something. That learning required silence from you. When you're quiet, you can hear. When you're quiet, you can see. And if you're always talking, you're never learning. And Paul's desire for the church at large, Paul's desire for these women specifically, is to be discipled, to be learners, to grow in their faith and grow in Christ-likeness. And that the preaching of the word and the Sunday gathering is essential for their spiritual growth according to God's design. And their behavior is not only keeping them from learning and growing Christ-likeness, but it's distracting, there's that word again, it's an obstacle that's distracting and keeping others from learning too. So submissiveness and the word submission has become a divisive word. It's a repulsive word to many, which in part is the church's fault. We need to recognize this because the church only tends to use it when it invokes talking about women submitting to men in the church or in the home or elsewhere. But submission is a principle seen and displayed all throughout the Bible. All believers in salvation submit themselves to God. To have faith in Christ is to submit ourselves to him and his word and to live according to his design by his spirit. We are all called to submit to one another in church as members. Uh, In the home, husbands and wives submit together initially. um, and, And that submission is never an aspect of hierarchy, but about distinction for the purpose of unity. And we see this most of all in the God, in the triune God himself. When Jesus speaks about he as the eternal son submits to the will of the eternal father. So submission, it's not hierarchy. It's become a real divisive, heated word today. But it's distinction for the purpose of unity. We got to keep going here. Then we get to verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. All right, I know we're covering a lot today, but this is not the sermon to cut things short. Um, There are three general ways the church has interpreted verse 12. Let me share them briefly. Three ways. Um, I'll call them options. Option one, women should never teach or lead men in the local church. And that no place in the ministry should there be a woman teaching a man. That's option one. Option two, women who are qualified can and should teach brothers in Christ in formal and informal ways. While the office of elder, which we'll dig into more next week, is to be held by men. That's option two. Option three, that Paul is only prohibiting these women in Ephesus. He's not prescribing this principle to all women. And therefore, every position in any church is interchangeable between qualified men and qualified women today. That's option three. 
And we will unpack this more next week, but when we, co- when we cover the qualifications for elder in the next passage, but Grace Church has and does align with option two. That qualified women teach men, both and women, in formal and informal ways in this church, while the office of elder in this church is to be held by men. And so I want to point out how this timeless principle stands against culture, even when culture might shift around it. Because as I said in the first century, the church would have gotten hammered by the culture for how they held the conviction that women should learn as disciples, and that women are on equal footing with men in the local church as disciples. They would have gotten hammered for it. And now in the 21st century, the same truth is being proclaimed, and the church often does get hammered today for holding the conviction that the office of elder is to be held by men. The word is timeless. The culture will shift around it. But one of the reasons why grace has aligned with the historic view of option two is because of the way that Paul grounds that statement in verse 12 in 1 Timothy 2. And that Paul gives his reasoning not with an argument rooted in culture, but in creation. He brings Timothy and the church back to Genesis 1 through 3 when God created Adam and Eve. And the first mention of gender in the Bible comes in Genesis 1.27 on the sixth day of creation when it says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then in chapter 2, we get more detailed account of creation. How he created Adam first from the dust of the ground. And then he created Eve out of the side of Adam with his rib. So in God's creative design in Genesis, we see distinction without division. We see distinction without division. That God created humans with distinct genders that are unified in value and worth and likeness since they are both made in the image of God. So when we talk about men and women in the church, wherever that conversation goes, we should always emphasize how our similarities far outweigh our distinctions. It's not to say that we erase distinctions between men and women, but we also don't elevate those distinctions to the value of worth. We have far more in common than we have as distinctions. And so on this point, again, I want to keep saying, come back next week, but come back next week. While grace is practiced and conviction is the office of elders to be held by men, we also need to acknowledge how often that model has done damage to women because of a sinful application. Where patriarchy depowers women in their leadership giftings instead of deploying women in their leadership giftings for the health of the church and the glory of God. Uh, Riken, again, I think just says it best. I'll put him, uh, n- another quote from him on the screen. He says, quote, The church has some reason to be ashamed of the way it has treated women, but no reason to be ashamed of what God has said about women in his word. The word is good. The application is often harmful. And we need to acknowledge that and understand where even at grace we can f- see ourselves complicit in that. But here's how I want to close. We still have the final verse to unpack. Let me read it again. Verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What is Paul saying? Because it kind of appears like he just said that salvation from women comes through having children. So let me say first, he is not saying that. Because 
it would contradict the very gospel that Paul proclaims all throughout the Bible. That salvation comes through grace alone. That it is God's grace to you that you're saved, not our works. Second, the reason why he's not saying this is because not all women have children. And a woman's value in the eyes of God or the church is not contingent on them having children. Many women are called to singleness. Many married women are not able to have children. Um, By the way, singleness like Jesus. Singleness like Paul, who's writing this letter. So what is he saying then? Here's what I think he's saying. Paul is making a reference to one of the gender distinctions that God designed in creation to carry out his purposes. He's emphasizing distinctions between men and women, and he's raising up one of those distinctions. Because hang with me here. Not all women have children, but all children are born to women. Not all women have children, but all children are born to women. Everyone that has ever existed came into be in this world through the body of a woman. And while men or women are both together needed to create a child, they are not interchangeable in their roles of childbearing. Men are men, and women are women, and men need women, and women need men to carry out God's call on Adam and Eve's life and what we know as the cultural mandate. So I read verse 27 when he created man and woman, male and female in his image. Then the very next verse, Genesis 1, And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's what we know as the cultural mandate. It's the first command they were given. And in that command, there is distinction and there is dependence. Men and women are distinct from one another, yet dependent upon one another to carry out the cultural mandate. And that mandate was carried out, albeit imperfectly, as we know. From Adam and Eve through the Old Testament and the nation of Israel, all under the providential plan of God, always pointing somewhere, pointing towards someone, leading to a man born in Bethlehem who, like the rest of us, was born through the body of a woman. You see, in a real sense, we were all saved through childbearing, in that our Savior was born of Mary. Fully God and fully man, born to live the life we could not live, called to die the death that we deserved, and offer forgiveness and redemption of our sin by his death and resurrection. You see, we were all saved through childbearing. And then that leads to the moment where Jesus has risen from the grave and he's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And before he does, you know what he did? He gave what we know as the Great Commission which is the new covenant version of the cultural mandate in Genesis 1. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, a.k.a. be fruitful and multiply. And that commission to us, to the church in Ephesus, to Grace Church today, it fuels us in the church. It is the why behind all that we do. It empowers us to acknowledge and address whatever obstacles that might come in our way, in our public gatherings of carrying out that mission. It's true for them. It's true for us. And just as was the case in the garden, when it comes to the ministry of the local church, men and women together are both needed. Distinct from one another, yet dependent upon one another to make disciples of all nations. 
And so we'll leave it there and pick up on that theme next week when we get to chapter 3. But let me just say it another way for clarity. If Grace Church is to faithfully carry out the mission in the way God has designed us to, then we must actively engage and deploy the leadership and teaching giftings of both men and women we have here. And I am grateful that all across our ministry, you see men and women engaged in teaching and leadership. And that can be true and is true while still holding to the biblical conviction that the office of elder is to be held by men. Distinct from, but dependent upon, as we together submit to our only hope, our living hope, Jesus Christ. May it be true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the road that we traveled this morning in your word. Father, a passage that we lament is so divisive amongst believers. I pray this morning that what we have experienced is an engaging of the mind for the purpose of a stirring of the heart. Because in all in all, we are reminded that you are enough for us. You are enough for this church. You're enough for the mission that you've called us to. And that you were enough to deliver us home on that day. Father, equip our hands for the work of the ministry. Give us boldness and confidence and compassion as we carry it out. And let it all be for your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we respond now in worship.